This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour. Welcome to Trumpet Hour on this sixth day of December 2023. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and we appreciate you spending some of your time with us. Tomorrow marks the two-month anniversary of Hamas's ineffably brutal surprise attack on mostly civilians in Israel. And actually, since this was overwhelmingly unsuspecting civilians that were targeted, this should not even be called an attack, but a massacre, a horrific Massacre, And in the two months since then, all kinds of grotesque propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation have been circulating regarding Hamas's attack and Israel's subsequent effort to prevent a repetition of that carnage. Much, if not most of the propaganda, misinformation, and disinformation is actually part of a deliberate attempt to obscure the truth and the roles of both Hamas and Israel in the war. So in our first segment today, we'll examine some of the most prevalent and vicious lies, and we'll set the record straight in an interview with trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. The second story is also about Hamas's massacre, zeroing in on the role that mind-altering drugs, specifically Captagon, played in the terrorists' brutality. Captagon is an amphetamine, often called cocaine for the poor, and it appears to have been a significant factor in the terrorists' atrocities. So we'll hear all about that in a report by trumpet writer Rafaro Manyepa. And then in the third segment, we'll look at some of the effects that Hamas's savagery is having in European politics, and we'll focus specifically on some major shifts underway in the Netherlands. Some significant changes are happening in the Netherlands' political arena, and we'll hear about that in a report from trumpet writer and Dutch national Peter Van Halteren. Our last word will take a bit of a peek behind the curtain today, looking at the organization behind Trumpet Hour and KPCG. So that'll be coming up toward the end of the show, but we begin now looking at the falsehoods, the gaslighting, the projection, distortion, and toxic absurdity that are putrefying the wells of discussion about Hamas's war on Israel. To address these endless lies, I'm joined by trumpet writer Mihailo Zekic. Mihailo, it's great to have you on the show today. Great to be here. So to start off, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about where this propaganda is showing up. You know, where would a trumpet hour listener be likely to hear or see some of this misinformation and disinformation? Well, the answer is everywhere, really. You would think in the era of every guy and his dog being a journalist that just has a smartphone, people being able to tell their accounts of the stories within minutes of things actually happening with uh, the perpetrators themselves uploading videos of what they're doing with them releasing statements and manifestos and whatnot that don't really mince words on what their end goals are. But surprisingly enough, there's a lot of noise out there coming from different people with different agendas, but ultimately it all gets back to the same kinds of lies that uh, what Israel is doing right now in Gaza is way more horrific than anything Hamas did on, 
October 7th, that's what Hamas did in itself is exaggerated, that the Jews are trying to commit genocide even against Palestinians. That's something we hear often, that the Jews are the aggressor. You could hear this from a lot of Muslim groups themselves, especially Muslim media outlets. Al Jazeera is a pretty notorious one for spewing this vitriol for years now, but also from Western sources. You'll hear this from a lot of liberal newspapers that view Israel as a colonialist society that's unfairly going after the Palestinians, and also even some conservative outlets who are saying that freedom-loving people should not be getting involved in foreign wars and that kind of thing. And so why is the American government giving weapons to Israel, say, for example? So there's all sorts of lies. Some of them overlap with each other more than others, coming from different people with different points of view, different reasons for why they're saying these lies. But really, you could find these kind of, as you said, misinformation and disinformation everywhere. Yeah, so the falsehoods are virtually ubiquitous at this point, really inescapable unless you're living in a literal cave, it seems. Well, let's get started with these lies. Maybe we can just go through these one by one and give you a chance to discuss some of the prevalent falsehoods each in turn and then illuminate what the reality is. So first of all, one common claim in the Twitter sphere or the X sphere is that all the Palestinians want is a two-state solution. And if they had that, these tensions would pretty much come to an end. That's the claim. What can you tell us about it? Well, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, for one thing, never mind the Palestinians at large, even just focusing on Hamas themselves, which this war is against. It's not against the Palestinian people. Israel, compared to a lot of armies, including, say, American armies, British armies, when they were involved in, say, Afghanistan, Iraq, etc., they didn't evacuate citizens or give people caught in urban fighting crosshairs as much of a path to escape so much as Israelis are per se. So Israel's not bombing Palestinians per se. Israel's going after Hamas. But this is what Hamas says. This is the preamble in Hamas's founding covenant. Quote, Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it, end quote. That's Hamas's goal. Hamas maybe isn't as diplomatic as some of these other Palestinian groups, but you still hear people saying that, you know, Hamas just needs a space. It, it just wants to flourish. It's they saying themselves, they don't want a Jewish state to exist in the Holy Land. And if you don't want to take Hamas's word for it, well, take the Israelis' word for it, because they basically did give Gaza a two-state solution. The West Bank is a bit more of a complicated scenario. But as far as Gaza is concerned, Israel, aside from minor military operations where soldiers come in and leave immediately, has not been occupying Gaza since 2005. Gaza is not an occupied territory. Hamas, for all intents and purposes, runs Gaza as a state, as people are very well familiar with. Now, they have their own military, they have their own borders, they have their own foreign affairs, they have their own economy. Basically, the only thing that they share with Israel are a common border, a common currency, and some utilities that Israel gives to Gaza because Hamas just does such a horrible job in mismanaging its own resources, whether siphoning off money or converting civilian infrastructure for military purposes that leaves Gaza in such a decrepit state. When you look at Gaza pre-October 7th, that was the two-state solution. And if Gaza were to have declared peace with Israel, 
if the Hamas government were to say we recognize the Jewish state and want to leave it be, Israel would have recognized them in a heartbeat. There's a reason that when Israel was withdrawing from the Palestinian territories, the West Bank is still a convoluted, thorny issue. Gaza was almost a no-brainer. Like We're just giving it all away because they see that Gaza is a much more easier situation to manage. It holds less historic value to the Israelis, shall we say. And Gaza was given, as far as the Palestinians are concerned, way more preferential treatment in developing a two-state solution than any other Arab area that Israel took over in 1967. And they rejected it. They rejected it on October 7th, and they still reject it. So a two-state solution is no solution. That is clear when you look at the facts. I also wanted to ask you about the numbers that are being bandied about regarding Israel's efforts to neutralize Hamas. Some of these are pretty stunning f- figures and statistics regarding death counts and civilian casualties and things like that. What can you tell us about these numbers? Well, at the time of this recording, the numbers always seem to fluctuate on what the Gaza Health Ministry is saying. Officially, we could safely say that it's pegged at around over 11,000 Gazans that Israel has killed, or at least that's what the Hamas-led Gaza Health Ministry is saying. They're the only authority, if you could call them that, in Gaza right now that is giving these kinds of numbers. And they're the only authority that outside sources, including Western media, including Western governments, are using to portray the scale of the conflict. Now, there were roughly 1,400 Israelis killed on October 7th in its aftermath, and that number is climbing as Israeli soldiers get killed in Gaza. You would think, okay, 1,400 versus 11,000 plus. That's quite a big dichotomy. Is Israel being too harsh on the general population, et cetera, et cetera? The truth is, we don't know if those numbers are accurate or not, and most likely they are not. Now, Gaza a lot of people say it's one of the most densely populated corners on the globe. Israel is doing all it can to help civilians evacuate, including if that means previously daily pauses in fighting, if that means contacting people in their apartments through their cell phones, telling them to get out before a missile hits. That's the kind of thing invading armies don't normally do to civilians to help them out. But even with that in mind, the Hamas health ministry has a reason to fabricate numbers. It's always tried to use a civilian population as human shields so that way they could bump up numbers to say, look how many people of ours Israel is killing when in fact Hamas put them in the forefront. Hamas is the one that builds command centers under hospitals, for example, or hides weapon caches uh, around schools. They want inflated civilian numbers. They want Israel to look bad. They've done it before in case of using their own people or fabricating numbers and since Israel is the army on the ground that's calling the shots at this point, one weapon that Hamas still has is to try and make Israel look like the bad guy by inflating these kinds of numbers. Now, that's a pretty big claim to make, to say that Hamas is fidgeting these numbers. How can we know? Well, in one particularly notorious incident where death tolls have been able to be compared between Hamas and outside sources, we see a very big gap between the numbers that Hamas gives and the numbers other uh, sources gives. That's the Al-Alhi Arab Hospital explosion. That's that infamous story from about a month back where supposedly Israel bombed this hospital and Hamas gave this tally that 500 patients died. And that's what the story that people originally ran with. Turns out, for one thing, the hospital wasn't bombed. It was its parking lot. Secondly, it was 
a rocket from another terror group allied with Hamas that misfired that caused the explosion. And the Church of England, who operates this hospital, it's a church-run hospital, said that roughly 200 people died. 500 people to 200 people. U.S. intelligence suggests that the number could be even lower. And as soon as those figures came up, then Hamas started fidgeting its numbers, like, oh, well, uh, 500 was a little bit hasty, etc. They're already caught lying on this one time in the scale of over half of the numbers that the organization that runs the hospital itself is saying. Who's to say that's not the same thing with those 11,000? So again, it's a bit of a mystery at this point. We can't really know until the dust settles and more outside observers come to make records. But for now, we can't trust Hamas's numbers. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that about the civilian casualties, because the evidence really does show that Israel's efforts to minimize those civilian casualties in Gaza are nothing short of Herculean. As you said, before they launch airstrikes, they warn Gazans ahead of time, they drop leaflets, even send personal phone calls and text messages. And all of that really dulls the blade of the Israeli Defense Forces attacks. You know, it removes any element of surprise. It allows terrorists plenty of time to escape. But Israel does it anyway, just because they're trying so hard to minimize those deaths. And meanwhile, you've got the Hamas zealots who intentionally target civilians in Israel and who use their own people, their own civilians, as human shields to try to prevent Israel from being able to attack their various logistics hubs and and things like that. Hamas, you know, it is a death cult, and there should be no mistaking the difference between those who intentionally kill as many civilians as possible and those who try to avoid that, even to their strategic detriment. And even with those numbers that Hamas gives, they don't differentiate between killed militants and civilians. So for all we know, a lot of those thousands could have been legitimate military targets in the form of soldiers, fighters, terrorists, whatever you want to call them, which an army that was attacked by those same fighters, it shouldn't be controversial for them to go after them again. Right. Yes. Okay. One other uh, prevalent claim in circulation is about the organization called the Palestinian Authority and how effective they would be as a potential replacement for Hamas. What can you tell us about that? This is one of my, shall we say, favorite falsehoods that are are circling around the internet. And I say favorite because you would think when October 7th happened, people's first reaction would not be, okay, because this happened in Gaza, this means Gaza needs even more independence from Israel. But that's exactly what a lot in the international community and the political community especially are saying. This includes the U.S. government, the European Union, prominent figures in there saying that once the dust settles, once Israel uproots Hamas, then the Palestinian Authority, the the government by Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah, needs to come and take over Gaza immediately. And then we can finally have that two-state solution that we just talked about. First off, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu already said that's not going to happen. And it should be clear for any outside observer that's not a viable solution. For one thing, when Israel withdrew from Gaza, they did give it to the Palestinian Authority. In 2005, it was 100% run by the PA. And a couple years later, 2007, Hamas takes over. You had Hamas literally throwing PA representatives off the roofs of buildings. If Hamas would obviously be in a bit of a weaker position at this point, but... The Palestinian Authority is not going to keep the peace when it tried once and failed, and it's, if anything, in an even weaker state now than it was 20 years ago. 
but that that's one aspect of this. The second aspect of this is the other factions in uh, the, the Palestinian territories participated in the October 7th massacre, including the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, which is designated as a terror group by Western governments. They're the military wing of Fatah, which is Mahmoud Abbas's party, the party that controls the Palestinian Authority. They posted some videos on their website showing them on October 7th attacking Israelis along with Hamas on the same day as Hamas was doing it, breaching the same fences, attacking the same communities. Fatah has tried to distance themselves from the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. But you even go back in 2004, the PA Prime Minister Ahmed Khoury stated that the brigade is a part of Fatah and that Fatah bears full responsibility for the group. That was a long time ago. Their finances and their hierarchy still remain pretty murky. But there's no reason to suspect that any of that has changed. I mean, it's the same leadership that's controlling the Palestinian Authority, controlling Fatah now as it was then. And there's no way Abbas didn't know that this participation didn't happen. Either he supported it or he felt he was too powerless to stop it, which could be the case. But either way, neither of those options makes Fatah or the PA a legitimate partner to start governing Gaza. You're going to have the same thing happen again as October 7th. You're going to have terror attacks into Israel. You're going to have civilians killed. You're going to have Israel's security compromised by genocidal zealots. So if anybody says that Abbas's faction is a viable alternative, and we're so close to peace, nothing could be further from the truth. So, Mihailo, you have pulled together a lot of powerful information here, just exposing the falsehoods and setting the record straight on this. What could you tell the listeners about what they could read if they wanted to understand more about the big picture significance of the conflict and the rising tensions in Israel and about what lies ahead? Yes, so yesterday our latest print magazine for the Trumpet, the January edition, was sent out to the printers. It focuses on what we call our special report on the post-truth world. A lot of that issue focuses on the Israel-Hamas conflict, including several articles on who's telling the truth and the sides, what are Israel's claims to its land, the prevalence of anti-Semitism since October 7th. But it also covers a lot more about being able to separate truth and lies, being able to know what's propaganda and what's actually truth. And it's all based off of the Bible. Jesus Christ himself said in John 17 that God's word is truth. That is the surest foundation of the truth we can have. And it is the only lens that we can use to really filter out what's true and what isn't. That issue, again, just went sent out of the printers. It won't be hitting mailboxes for some time, but it's not too late for our listeners to put their names to the subscription list and hopefully be able to get that issue as it comes out in the mail. Yes, and uh, you can keep an eye out on thetrumpet.com for that issue as well. We'll publish it there in the days ahead. Well, Mahalo, there are some really vicious lies out there that are gaining just an astonishing amount of traction. And we truly appreciate you coming on today to set the record straight about these falsehoods. So thanks very much. Thank you for having me.
This is the voice of the Trumpet News Magazine. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. One significant factor in Hamas's massacre that has not gotten very much press coverage is the role that mind-altering drugs, specifically Captagon, played in their demonic brutality. It's certainly not the first time that terrorists or soldiers have relied on drugs to fuel their carnage. This is a tactic that many slaughterers have used in various conflicts over the years. And for Hamas, it does appear to have been a significant factor in their atrocities, which we'll hear all about now in this report from trumpet writer Rafaro Manyapa. Hamas activists were drugged up to the nose as they launched the horrific attack on Israel last month. That's according to the Jerusalem Post, and they even say that Israeli forces found Captagon pills on several Hamas terrorists after they were killed. Captagon is an amphetamine, widely called cocaine for the poor. It gained notoriety when Islamic State terrorists used it in 2015 to suppress fear and gain quote-unquote courage to carry out their heinous acts. Today, it's a popular export around the Middle East and it's commonly used by the Syrian army, Hezbollah, and Hamas. And that's what Hamas terrorists were high on as they invaded people's homes raped and killed civilians, and brutally butchered Israeli babies. Here's what Representative French Hill told the Washington Post, quote, Captagon is supporting terrorism financially, providing the money to expand the reach of terrorists, and is also fueling the terrorists themselves to go out and commit brutal atrocities like we witnessed in Israel. End quote. The use of drugs and stimulants in war is common, but it isn't widely known. From ancient Greece to Nazi Germany, drugs have been behind some of the most heinous activities in man's history. Take World War II, for example. There was the German company Tembler, which produced and sold Pervitin, an over-the-counter pick-me-up. But this drug was basically crystal meth. And that's what the Nazi army was on. But the army was using it as an ideal drug to combat fatigue. And just like the Greek hoplites and the Roman legionnaires were running into battle fueled by alcohol, the Nazis' blitzkrieg warfare was inflamed by the use of methamphetamines. And so it's clear that drugs played a crucial part in both of Israel's most recent holocausts. According to Jeffrey Wari, a military historian at the University of North Texas, Pervitin was being issued to German troops and airmen like candy. And the effects were dramatic. Here's what author of Blitzed Drugs in Nazi Germany, Norman Oler says, quote, for the first time in military history, an army didn't have to rest at night but could go on for three days and three nights. And that really helps a person become a fighting robot. Imagine this on the scale of a couple of hundred 
thousand people, heavily armed, storming into an enemy territory, he says. It just becomes a completely crazy situation, end quote. And that's exactly what happened on October 7th. Not only do amphetamines curb appetite and allow people to stay awake for days on end, they also dull feelings of empathy and can make people feel invincible. And that's exactly what a genocidal regime would want for its soldiers who invade other countries and commit brutal crimes against civilians, women, and children. That's what groups like Hamas are training their population to think like from a young age. The UN actually interviewed Palestinian children recently who were saying that for them, all they want to do is to make war against the Jews. They want to stab them again and again, the children say. One of them actually said, I want to become a suicide bomber. Now think of that situation when it's in the actual theater of war, when these children are all grown up. Perhaps some soldiers would rather take Pervitin or Captagon than admit failure or face the fear of being killed in action. Norman Oler continues, quote, There are many reports that just before Germany attacked France, there were a lot of soldiers who were depressed, who didn't want to fight, who remembered the First World War. So the morale of the Germans was quite low. But once you take methamphetamines, he says, your morale actually becomes quite high. Soldiers experience some of the greatest stress imaginable. They have to fight for their country and cope with death that they see all around them, all the while mobilizing their own obligation to kill the enemy. And in such circumstances, popping a pill to quiet your fears and letting the drugs take the wheel is almost irresistible, especially when it's for a mind that has been conditioned to romanticize the horrific. It's the exact same situation with violence on a smaller scale. According to specialists at Finland's Kilmakoski prison, Drugs or alcohol are almost always behind violent criminal offenders. One inmate who was serving a life sentence for murdering two people believes that he only did so because, quote, he used to use many heavy drugs in the past, end quote. It was only once he got clean did he desire reform and start to make progress with the prison's violence counselor. Drugs play an irrefutable part in stimulating acts of violence, but that problem goes even deeper than most realize. The way society depicts them, drugs facilitate harmless fun in a dreamlike state or, at worst, cause the user to enter into a self-destructive binge. Our society disregards and even mocks the idea that the spirit world is real. Even among Christians, approximately half don't believe that Satan and the demons are real. 
Yet in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the Bible says that Satan the devil is real and he is the God of this world. In Matthew 8 verse 28 and in Luke 8 verse 30, it shows that demons are real and they can possess human beings. Matthew chapter 4 verses 1 through 11 and Mark 1 verse 32 showed that Jesus Christ himself battled Satan and his demons. The truth is, Satan and the demons are real. Their influence on human beings is real. And it is perhaps strongest on those who addle their minds with drug use. Late theologian and editor-in-chief of The Trumpet's predecessor magazine, The Plain Truth, Herbert W. Armstrong wrote that under normal circumstances, no one need fear a demon may take possession of their minds unless you open your mind by letting it be blank or under control of another or you lose your mind in an emotional, angry rage. And here's what we wrote in the April 2023 Trumpet Print edition. Quote, Far more common today are mind-altering drugs that break down the mind's defenses and can allow in demons. In 2021, over 100,000 people died of drug overdoses in the United States. The 2017 National Health Survey on Drug Use and Health estimated that 20 million Americans aged 12 and over had a substance disorder. There have been some well-publicized examples of addicts having their whole personality change and they have gone on to violently attack others. One such individual videoed himself attacking and then eating his homosexual partner. There is such a thing as monsters, demons, and ghosts, he wrote on his Facebook page. They live inside of us and sometimes they win. End quote. The footage of Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7th is horrific. The fact that the terrorists themselves filmed the atrocities as they committed them is even more disturbing. But the fact that they were under the influence of drugs, just as Nazi soldiers were in World War II when they killed six million Jews, shows that there is a spiritual dimension at play. The same Bible that proves that Satan and his demons are real also says in 2 Kings 14 verse 27 that Satan is determined to blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. What's going to happen in World War III? Will nations suddenly abandon the use of amphetamines? Will nations suddenly want their soldiers to have consciences and fight with integrity, obeying the laws of war? Or will they use even more drugs and commit the worst atrocities mankind has ever seen? That's what the Bible says will happen. The demonic influence on mankind is going to get much worse. 
Only God's protection will keep anyone safe. Request your free copy of America Under Attack to learn how to receive this protection. This is Trumpet Hour. Thank you for sticking with us in this episode of Trumpet Hour. We are coming up on the two-month anniversary of Hamas's massacre in Israel. That's tomorrow. So we've been taking a look at that ongoing nightmare there and Israel's military response to it in this episode. And so far, the conflict has remained mostly confined to Israel and Gaza. The hot war has remained mostly there. But the ramifications of this war are rippling out all across the world, including in Europe's political arena. It's having some significant effects there, and we'll take a look now at some major shifts underway in the Netherlands, with a man rising in power who many thought could never have garnered mainstream popularity. For this, we'll go to Dutch national and trumpet rider Peter Van Halteren. Islam an ideology of a retarded culture. He said that the Quran is a fascist book which incites hatred and killing, and he has had to be protected by an armed guard at all times due to death threats from Muslims. His name is Geert Wilders, and after decades of heavy criticism, his anti-immigration party for freedom won a stunning victory in last week's elections in the Netherlands. Some give Wilders the nickname the Dutch Donald Trump because of his fiery remarks, his bleach blonde hair, and his slogan, the Netherlands first again. His party is known for campaigning against the European Union, against immigration, and against Islam. He has called for a ban on the Quran, mosques, and all Islamic schools. He also aims to put a complete stop to the asylum tsunami which he said is causing the country's housing shortage and high healthcare costs. And you could consider these views extreme, but they are the standpoints that a big number of the Dutch people voted for. I remember when I was a student in high school and some of my classmates would joke about Geert Wilders and his extreme views against Islam and against immigration. And they kind of saw his party as a joke that was so extreme that this party would never gain enough support from the Dutch people to actually win the elections. Some guys would even repeat Wilder's remarks just to provoke the Muslims that were in our school. But nobody seriously thought that such an extreme party could actually win. And many of the Dutch used to feel that way. But then back in 2017, the party suddenly came second. And you know, as the Netherlands continued to struggle with migration, the party started to gain more and more popularity. And in these past elections, Geert Wilders and his party for freedom actually got the most votes by far. The party won 37 seats out of 150, making it the most popular party by far and more than doubling the number of seats it had in 2021. 
The party who usually gets the most votes is called the People's Party for Freedom and Democracy. This party was previously led by Prime Minister Mark Rutte, who has said he will leave Dutch politics after the next coalition forms. His party is now led by Dylan Yeshilgöz, who is actually an immigrant herself from Turkey. And her centrist party had slowly been losing popularity. And during these elections, it actually lost a humiliating 10 seats, bringing it down to 24. So Geert Wilders won more seats than any other party by far, but he will still have to work with other parties to form a coalition to reach at least 76 seats. This will be very difficult because most other parties strongly disagree with his views on Islam and immigration. Dylan Yeshirguz already said that her People's Party for Freedom and Democracy will not be part of this coalition. And the party that came second in the election, called New Social Contract, is also not keen on working with Geert Wilders. And Wilders knows about this problem, but he also knows that those parties don't really have much of a choice since he won by such a landslide. No parties can ignore us any longer, he said after his victory. One way or another, the parties will have to work together to form a coalition, or the Dutch political system will shatter. In an effort to appeal to other parties, Wilders toned down his anti-Islam views during this year's elections campaign. He focused on an issue that the Netherlands and really the rest of Europe have been facing for decades, and that problem is really the cause of increasing Islam populations. And that issue is, of course, migration. This controversial subject actually caused the previous Dutch government to collapse in July. So Geert Wilders wants to completely stop immigrants from coming in. And not only that, he also wants to increase the outflow by actually sending back illegal immigrants and taking away residence permits from refugees who, for example, go on holiday to their country of origin. Wilders said, quote, we have to think about our own people first now. Borders closed, zero asylum seekers, unquote. And clearly, a growing portion of the Dutch people agree with Wilders. Most migrants in the Netherlands come from Syria, Turkey, Afghanistan, and Yemen. And over 90% of the population in those countries are Muslim. More and more of the Dutch are fed up with these large numbers of immigrants. Many see these immigrants as the direct cause for the unreasonably high taxes, the high healthcare costs, and a towering rent that many can't pay anymore. Many are also concerned about the Islamist culture that is taking over. And these anti-immigration and anti-Islam sentiments in the Netherlands are part of a wider European trend. Governments throughout Europe are struggling with immigration. Within the first six months of 2023, more than half a million migrants applied for asylum. That is up 30% from the previous year. Now, people often want to empathize with migrants, but more and more Europeans are waking up to the problems that they bring, such as increased crime, housing shortages, and rising national debt. And as a result of that, fringe right parties against immigration are gaining more popularity, such as Geert Wilders' party. A study by the Journal of Religion and Demography shows that Muslims will reach 11.2% of the entire population of Europe by 2050 if immigration continues at the current rate. Then there's also the war in Israel, which probably was a big factor in the success of Geert Wilders. After Hamas invaded, many terrorist attacks followed across Europe, and we've covered that on the Trumpet.com.
And as a result of these attacks, many in Europe increasingly fear this expanding influence of Islam. Will there's extreme or quote-unquote extreme views against Islam are not as unpopular anymore. Other countries in Europe are starting to stand up to immigration and Islam as well. Now, Wilder's triumph may have shocked the EU's often left-leaning agenda, but it is not surprising to those familiar with Bible prophecy. In the July 2023 Philadelphia Trumpet issue, Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry explained that the Bible prophesies in Revelation 17 of seven resurrections of the Holy Roman Empire. Now, six of these resurrections have already happened, and a seventh one is about to occur. This July issue specifically centered around the ten European kings that are now uniting under Germany to form this last resurrection. And you can read about those ten kings in Revelation 17, especially verse 12. Mr. Fleury explains that these ten kings will be ten nations or groups of nations, and he identified the Netherlands as being one of these ten kings. In a key of David from May 5th, 2023, he pointed to the subordination of the Dutch army to Germany as proof that the Netherlands, or what he called Holland, is one of the ten kings. The excellent cooperation between the German and Dutch armed forces is regarded as a special example of a close common European security and defense policy. And that's from the German army. Now, the entire Dutch land force is now under German command. Already, you can see Germany and Holland, though those are two of those kings, are going to produce two of those kings anyhow, of the ten kings. Now, how can you read this any other way? Holland's entire land force is now under German command. So as Mr. Fleury points out, military cooperation between these nations is uniting the ten kings, and two of those are the Netherlands and Germany. But Bible prophecy also shows another major factor uniting these ten kings, the fact that these European nations are pushing back against immigration and Islam. And we can see that in another prophecy here in Daniel 11 verse 40, where God prophesies of a united European superpower called the King of the North that will soon clash with the King of the South. And his King of the South is radical Islam led by Iran. And you can prove that by ordering our free booklet, The King of the South. So after these 10 European kings are united, they actually go up against this King of the South. They go up against radical Islam and Iran. And as mentioned, one of those 10 kings that will together form this king of the north is the Netherlands. So Geert Wilder's victory in the Dutch elections proves that a clash with Islam or the king of the south is already building in Europe. Since Geert Wilder's early days in politics, he has said that the Western world is in an undeclared war with Islam. And a trumpet was already writing about this trend in 2010. We wrote, quote, a Europe that will stand up to Islam domestically will stand up to Islam internationally. Some Muslim immigrants have been constantly pushing at their European host nations, and now those nations are beginning to turn on them. The same thing will soon happen on the international scene." Unquote. The rise of fringe-right parties such as Geert Wilder's Party of Freedom shows that Europe is taking a stronger stand against immigration and Islam. Wilder's political gains are a harbinger 
of a powerful, nationalistic, anti-Islam Europe that will soon unite and conquer the King of the South. To learn more about this coming clash, you can read our Trends article called Why the Trumpet Watches Iran and Europe Heading for a Clash of Civilizations. And you can also order our free book, The King of the South. It's time for today's Last Word. Well, tomorrow does mark the two-month anniversary of Hamas's massacre on Israel, as I mentioned. But tomorrow also marks another anniversary, the 34-year anniversary of the organization that's behind Trumpet Hour and behind all of the programming that you hear on KPCG-FM. And that is the Philadelphia Church of God. It was back on December 7th of 1989 that the Philadelphia Church of God began with just a handful of people here in Edmond, Oklahoma. The church held its first service in a living room with just 12 members. But here we are 34 years on, and there are thousands of members from more than 50 countries, from Mexico to Chile to Austria to Zimbabwe to India to Papua New Guinea. And one voice that you've probably heard if you've listened to KPCG for any amount of time, is that of Mr. Gerald Flurry. He hosts the Key of David show here on KPCG, and that show is also televised, broadcast out over hundreds of TV stations and cable networks in dozens of countries. He recently recorded his 1,000th episode of the Key of David, and those episodes have generated well over 2 million viewer responses over the years. Those are you know, people who see the show and then they call or write in to order the church's free literature. There's no charge or solicitation for the cost of publishing, printing, or even mailing that literature out. And the literature includes scores of books and booklets, mostly written by Mr. Gerald Flurry, and also the Trumpet News Magazine, the Royal Vision Christian Living Magazine as well. If you'd like to order free subscriptions, to those, by the way, you can navigate to thetrumpet.com and start a free subscription there. The church also supports a summer educational program for teenagers and a K-12 grade school. 
and also Herbert W. Armstrong College, with one campus here in Edmond and one in Edstone, England. And there's much more as well. Mr. Andrew Loker wrote about the organization behind Trumpet Hour and behind the Trumpet News magazine in one of the magazine's issues a few years back. And he wrote, This is a work of giving and serving. It is supported entirely by voluntary tithes and donations from around the world. And every year, those contributions, in the millions, are devoted to broadcasting a message of warning and hope on television, the internet, and in print. All of our educational materials are provided without cost to those who request them. We do not solicit funds, nor do we follow up with those making requests in an effort to build our numbers. Rather, we live by the words of Jesus Christ, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. End quote. So that's just a little bit of a look behind the curtain here on this 34th anniversary of the Philadelphia Church of God. And you can find out more about the organization by reading Mr. Loker's article, which we'll leave a link to in the show notes for today's episode. You can find that on SoundCloud or on thetrumpet.com. Well, we are coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. In those show notes for today's episode, you'll also find links to all of the literature that today's various segments were based on. And if you have any comments or questions, please email us. The address is letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to my guests, Mihailo Zekic, Rafaro Manyepa, and Peter Van Halteren. Thanks also to Nicholas Irwin and Isaac Lorenz for taking care of the audio work for this episode. And I'll leave you with this thought from Mark Twain. If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you read the newspaper, you're misinformed. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>